Yudvede ut konlanri felute, de fotkost um fabsikata, in de lute vacer simjeken. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me in the great state of Wisconsin is William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. And I think my voice is not at 100% right now, so you'll have to suffer through it. <laughs> um, so how are you guys doing? Doing great, loving the weather. Went out hiking today and ju- cliff jumping. It was a lot of fun. Cliff jumping? Yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't like ginormous, but it was. It was pretty, pretty big of a cliff, and we jumped off of it and into the water, and it was fun. Okay, sounds good. dangerous. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yes, it was um, loads of fun. <laughs> um, I just woke up recently, and there were small children in the house, so that's. That's been my day. Are you acquainted uh, with small children, or were they random small children? No, 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 no. My my nephew and nieces. Ah. Uh, my the younger of my two older sisters' kids. That's a little less alarming. My, <laughs> I call her my number two sister. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I woke up and there were small children in my house, that would mean that I had just woken up in a short story by Kafka. <laughs> Okay. That, well, that should not ever happen. There's <laughs> just the fact that I I sleep during the days recently because I usually work night shift. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's all beside the point. I also um uh going back over emails that were sent to me by renters so uh, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Still getting through the planning stages of uh the great going move west. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you believe that, um, aside from going to actually to other countries within the U.S., I have never been to, I have never been, uh, I don't think I've ever been west of the Ohio River, not counting wow. airports. Wow. Yeah. I've been, so, on, I've been on, I've been on all coasts and both far north and far south. Wow. I've been as far west as, uh, Utah when we went camping over spring break and, uh, I've been as far north as Vermont. Someday I will go to Utah, but I have I have my own reasons for that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Which will remain nothing. mysterious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably next year I may next summer I may go to Utah if I have the money for it. Um, but anyway. Uh, so linguistically related, I'll just say that Salt Lake City, Utah, probably has the highest concentration of speakers of unusual languages on the planet. Because the Mormons have an extremely intense um, systems of language instruction for their missionary work, of course. But if you want to find somebody who speaks a language of Papua New Guinea, otherwise normally only spoken by, say, 5,000 people, Salt Lake City is your best chance to find someone who can do that. <laughs> oh yes, and they also have uh, uh, a varied and diverse immigrant community, which is surprising for something that's like landlocked in and not near any of the borders. 
Right, right. <laughs> the power of religion. <laughs> but anyway, let's actually get into talking about our topic, shall we? We we uh, seem to be boring people with our no. Our this little... is the this is the part about the people who make them. We have to make sure we get the whole thing through the conlangs. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> uh, uh, we could say something about uh, that tagline <laughs> later, but uh, let's let's uh, let's uh, talk about our main topic, which today is a practicum uh, that William suggested, uh, as he uh, usually pr- suggests the practicums, and it's things you can do with the middle voice. So yep. Sounds like a, a Jeopardy category. <laughs> William, as usual, you have a very, uh, a, a, the best explanation uh, of the three of us and the best understanding of what this is. So what is the middle voice in the first place? Um, so there's two separate issues here. There's the middle voice proper, and then there's what I'm doing with the middle voice for this episode. Um, sort of the classic definition of the middle voice that Mike hunted down and, and found on the, the Wikipedia, and it's pretty straightforward, and it's that the middle voice is middle because it's kind of between active and passive. The idea is that the subject of a middle verb is both the agent and the patient somehow. It, it participates in both an agent-like involvement and a patient-like involvement of the verb. Mm-hmm. Um and we can talk a little bit more about that I mean, when we get to examples. Um, for the purposes of the show, I'm using the middle voice as kind of a blob. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I, uh, no two languages that have a middle voice are going to do exactly the same things with it. There are certain commonalities. And it seems to me that if we can take the middle as sort of the center <laughs> of a bunch of interesting verb-related things you can do... Um, related to voice and argument structure, you know, that takes us beyond just active and passive and, and um, reflexive, that that would be a useful thing to do. Hmm. Now, so, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Can you have <laughs> okay. a middle voice, or are there languages that have a middle voice that don't have a passive? Yes. Okay. So it can be, you can have active and middle. Yes. Typically, when that happens, is your middle will, in certain circumstances, have a passive job, but that will be marked by some other syntax. For example, my my beloved ancient Greek. Hmm. Um, I some um, scholars believe, and I agree with them. I think they've made their case that there is no passive in ancient Greek. You have something called a medio passive, which mostly is middle-like, and it only unambiguously represents a passive when you have the agent phrase, prepositional phrase. I was hit by the car. Until you have the by the car point, you have no passive in in Greek. Interesting. So let's get into what what the the middle voice does. Well, okay, I just want to mention quickly that the morphology can come from several different directions. Um, And the full list of things that the middles can do that we're going to discuss today I'm not aware of any language that does all of them. Mm. So you might have, of course. you might have part of your, the things we're going to discuss today being handled by sort of things that look like passives. And then you might have another part that looks like middles. You might have another part that looks like reflexive. So I just want to talk about that. You might have a special conjugation. 
You might, mm-hmm. and we're going to see, we're going to see lots of things here that Romance language speakers and German speakers and Dutch speakers are going to recognize as reflexives. Um, so there are different ways to come at the morphology that takes you into middle yeah. and related yeah, things. Actually, um, I do want to mention, Mike, you had a note. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the, the Spanish, uh, reflexive, and I believe that particularly constructions like uh, aquí se habla español yeah. is actually a middle voice. That's um, it's really hard to translate, but it's sort of like uh, Spanish is spoken here, but <laughs> but um, even mm-hmm. but even that is a very uh, loose translation. But it's literally here third person reflexive speak Spanish. And Here, Spanish speaks itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously Spanish is not speaking itself, but it's sort of some com- unnamed argument is speaking Spanish, and right. it's it's sort of like a passive, and even I believe in traditional grammar it's called voz pa- pasiva, even though Spanish also has another passive voice that more that more closely fits the definition. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's mainly like a middle voice because it's so, to me, it's so ambiguous what the arguments actually are or what the, the, the natural, like, agent, because you could say it as, uh, we speak Spanish or, uh, they speak Spanish here. And it, it, obviously this is a particular example I'm looking at, but it, well, I think mm-hmm. it's a middle to me. I think yeah. there's a lot of it. Like, I, I was look, when I was looking around for, um, examples of middle voice, Things like, um, like the, there's one example I've listed, the vase broke, you know, or like we were talking about like the, the window, la bandana se rompió, like in Spanish mm-hmm. you have that kind of reflexive, or I think that reflexive in Spanish where what is, uh, syntactically looking like a subject also has like a patient kind of role. I think that's what we were talking about earlier. Uh, if you say something like, um, like me baño, I'm not sure if that's necessarily middle voice or if that's just pure reflexive or if they overlap. Well, the the point here is I think calling something the middle voice is a little bit like throwing up your hands and saying, I give up. Uh (laughs) There's something something voice-like going on here, and I don't know what else to call it, so it's a middle. Uh Because we're, we're just discussing things. Each language has a structure. You have the reflexive in a romance language covers a vast number of functions, which we're going to start listing shortly. Um, and they call them reflexive because that's the morphology. In You look at in Somali or ancient Greek, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, well, that's the middle, doing many of the same things. So I want yeah. people to keep well, that in mind. A middle might yeah, have a very specific meaning in this or that language, but it's by no, you can't assume that what's a middle in one language will work for middles in another. I think also that might be referring to like what you might call reflexive might be morphologically speaking, but using middle voice might be the you know naming the same beast something different from a different because, because it's a, a, a conjugation instead of yeah yeah that could be true. yeah so let's we've we've talked a little bit about uh there's there's other things that you can do with morpho the morphology right you have sometimes your passives. Or you might have a specific type of passive that that serves as the middle, or you might have something that's specifically middle voice uh, related. So I don't know, William. Would that be like a specific 
uh, inflection or construction that's, that you can't identify as anything else but middle voice or what? Right. I, I think that's what sometimes happens. Yeah. Um, thanks, and, thanks to the, the mm, long history of the ancient Greek grammatical tradition, this terminology of the middle reaches us in the modern world, and we go out in the field and we find something that's not an active, not a passive, so we call it a middle when it doesn't look like a reflexive. <laughs> if it doesn't fit so, in column A or column B, we throw it in the yeah. middle voice. Yeah, which will cover a different semantic space for every language. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked... Um, we'll probably have more Spanish examples, but we oh, yeah. talked a little bit about Spanish stuff, which a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, and we've talked a little bit about... Um, morphology in general and uses in general. Let's get into, William, your big list of things that the that a middle can do. Right. Mm. So the first one is it could be a full reflexive. So, and I mean this that, that this can go both ways. You can have mm. reflexive pronouns that squish out and take over other middle meanings, which mm. we're most familiar with in the, the Western European languages. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can have a morphological separate middle voice marker um, that can take on, you know, I hit myself kinds of meanings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's that. Um, the next thing that's very common is verbs of grooming and body motion mm-hmm. are very frequently participate in middle morphology, whether that's a reflexive or whatnot. So things like wash is a classic yeah. example, right? Ich dusche mich, blah, blah, blah. You know, all sorts of languages do this. Yeah, that's, or, that's, that's, that's something that, um, definitely romance does, cause I know, uh, me lava los manos, that yeah, kind of right? stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and save that example for later, cause that's another point I want to make at the middle toward the end. Um, or another an example of body motion is rush. Um, I don't know what it is in Spanish to say that you're hurrying somewhere, but, Apurarse? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. It's reflexive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that language. Well, there's, there's, there's a bunch of verbs. We could get into, we could get into the nitty gritty of Romance languages in Spanish and, and talk about all these verbs that require a, a se, but we, we need right. to be a little bit more general than that. Yeah. 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 Um, sort of related to this, maybe a little bit is very often verbs of emotion are mm-hmm. middles. Um, so French yeah. uses uh, s'étonner to be astonished, right? I mm-hmm. astonish myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another class of verbs that might take uh, middle marking is natural reciprocals. Those are actions that necessarily involve two people. Things like hug and kiss, for example, or fight. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so in Greek, the verb for, for people who are fighting is in the middle, makomai. Hmm. You know, makontai, they're, they're fighting. Um, yes. uh-huh. You're gonna say? Um, when I was looking up, and this might fall right in with this, um, I was looking up in English how some verbs are what the site called ergative verbs, and um, it called it that, for example, I bathed, you understand, you mean you bathed yourself, you don't think you bathed something else but when you say i i ate it doesn't have that same feeling because you know you ate something else you don't think you ate yourself right and uh, i don't know if that was when you were talking about the grooming and about in the motion and the um 
and the emotion verbs, if that was touching on that kind of ergativity in some verbs in English, or if that was just not related. Well, see, English is really horrible here because we have a lot of because we have a lot of verbs that take on vaguely middle meaning when they mm-hmm. have no overt direct object, mm-hmm. but then become fully transitive, active voice the instant a direct object appears, like I move, mm-hmm. I move the car. Mm-hmm. Yes, right, and that's because English is insane. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so something like I move versus I move the car in any other sensible language has some overt morphology that distinguishes the active from the middle sense. Mm. Ancient Greek, all the Romance languages, all these languages of Europe will, for the most part, be very clear about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Spanish, I think it's... it's I'm, I'm sorry, go on. Go. Oh, I was just going to say for bañarse, if you just say yo baño, I think that's ungrammatical. I think you have to say, I would say me baño or you have to say yo I don't know if you could say yo baño perro or something like that. Like I bathe the dog. I don't know mm-hmm. if you could say it like that. It might just be lavar, but anyways. Um Yeah, you you'd have to use you'd have to use wash. But if you even if you say like yo lavo, I think that requires some sort of object. You can't just say like I washed. Does it require one or does it imply that you're not like it could be in in the context? See now uh, we need a native speaker of Spanish. Yeah, my guess like whenever I was learning it, I got the feeling of if you say yo lavo it's incomplete. It's like it's saying, okay. Yeah. I think so there's a little some... discomfort in some other languages. They still want a direct object, even though mm-hmm. they still have other morphology that distinguishes it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway. Um, well, I'm sorry. You were talking about um, the natural reciprocals. reciprocals. Right. Natural, and then we can have other kinds of reciprocals might also fall into middle marking somehow. Things like respect. They respect mm-hmm. each other. <laughs> Um, so, um, I love this word. Oh, oh, wait. Yes, George? I was trying to think straight up, um, Chinese has that an uncomfortable list with, with, uh, sort of middle meanings to the point where they just add an object. Like when you say, uh, when you say, uh, I wash my, if, if you were going to say I took a bath in Chinese, it's, or, or I bathe in, in Chinese, it's washita, which is, uh, the best I can translate it, I wash a bath. Uh-huh. Chinese has a lot of that redundancy in having two, like, two verbs that mean the same thing, or using, having an object built into that, I think. And, and yeah. part of that is earlier stages of Chinese had the same kind of weird ergativity that English has, mm-hmm. in the sense that many verbs were middle or otherwise intransitive with no overt object and then become transitive or causative as the instant a direct object appears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with all sorts of complications for those studying classical Chinese, we can omit for now. Huh. Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, then we get to my the lovely word, auto-benefactive. <laughs> huh. Yes. That's when oh, you do okay. something for yourself. Uh-huh. Um, when the subject is doing something for its own benefit, this is the common example in every beginning ancient Greek textbook trying to explain to you why the middle is called that. <laughs> okay. um, so the, the, the example that appears in practically every textbook is um, didasko, which means to teach. So you have the, the difference between the man taught his son, which is active, versus the man had his son taught. Oh, that's is that like a, like a 
Is that like a causative or like a like kind of you make someone no, else? No, no, it's definitely an auto benefactive. I mean, I'm trying to be um, idiomatic in English. It really, the sense is he had his son educated for his benefit. Namely, Does it say that? Benefit. But he wasn't the one doing the education. Doing the education. Exactly, right? exactly. That's the point. He's not necessarily directly involved. He's having something being done for his benefit. Okay. Interesting. Um, I always thought this was a very weird meaning, but it turns out that it's a regular feature of languages with robust middles. So Somali um, has a middle voice, which is surprisingly like ancient Greeks mm. in terms of the mm-hmm. range of meanings it covers. All right. So another function the middle can do is a deobjective. Mm-hmm. That's what the paper I read called it. To me, it sounds like an anti-passive. It's where you omit a specific object because it's irrelevant. So Romance languages don't do this, but Russian does. So, Mike, you can give us the Russian briefly. And that means the dog bites. Mm-hmm. Literally, the dog bites itself, but obviously that makes no sense. It's that reflexive. If you were, if you were going to say, if you wanted to say dog bites itself, you'd say and then you'd say the word for itself. I think that would be like, man, now i got to think of it. But you would have a pr- the pronoun there. You'd have a pronoun there to, instead of simply this vaguely. In addition um, to that reflexive so, ending. So it's, right. it's, it's yeah, die, that sounds like, it, it, yeah, that would have, the, that sounds like an anti-passive to me because you're yeah. just dropping the object. So the dog bites, would that be like um, in, in English the, when we say that dog bites, meaning the dog habitually bites people? Exactly, exactly. The dog is inclined to bite, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. The dog is bitey. <laughs> um, <laughs> after, after, um, after our pre-show, uh, uh, one, we should have an example of the monkey bites. <laughs> <laughs> the monkey our, bites. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, so there's this kind of anti-passive sense. Like I said, I don't think any of the romance languages do this, but it, it obviously English does something similar. In the sense that bite, normally we would expect an object, but here we've omitted an object and we've lost transitivity a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. It means something else. In respect to what I said earlier, when you say like I eat, it means you understand it means you eat something. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you and you say I wash, it means you're, I bathe. It means you bathe, yourself, bathe yourself. But with this, it seems almost like the dog bites is like a like a like a um, demoting of the object because it's not really important. Right. So right. yeah. I suppose that's what anti-passive you'd mean by. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So another anti that the middle can do is an anti-causative. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Which is confusing name. It just, it's, it means that the subject experiences a state of affairs with no agency, either semantic or syntactic. The classic example is always the window broke. Which I mentioned earlier in Spanish. Right. The bread baked. Yeah. Yeah, that that definitely occurs in Spanish, but uh, mm-hmm. the coffee brewed, all the of chicken, lo- yeah, the chicken marinated, yeah, yeah the chicken oh. marinated, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting. I I like this one. I like having a, a way. I think that if you're very concerned with animacy, this may be a good way to use your middle voice because obviously most basically almost any inanimate uh any inanimate animate uh uh sort of experiencer mm-hmm. could probably take this yep because 
the, the, obviously the point is the window broke. The window had no, no, no agency or, or causation in breaking. It just happened to break. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, it sounds like, it sounds like when a little kid doesn't want to, you know, fess up, what happened? The window broke. Did you break it? It's broken. <laughs> window broke. Right. So people who tell you that the passive is used to hide agency have never learned <laughs> about the middle. <laughs> Take that, George Orwell. <laughs> um, Indeed. Another thing a middle can do is what one paper I read called the potential passive. This occurs in English and, and German and I think maybe one or two other languages where you say things like this book sells well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Or or it reads easily in English. The use is practically confined to being used with adverbs like well or easily. Uh huh. Right. So again, books don't sell things in the normal scheme of <laughs> things. They don't, they don't even sell themselves. They don't even sell themselves, but the book sells well. This is really weird to talk about in English because since we don't have any really morphological middle. It's, it's really hard to be just, overt, yes. Yeah, it's it's really just these weird secondary uh lexical things. Well it is morphological. <laughs> it's just it's it's indicated expressly by the zero morph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just like nothing. This would be right. hard to uh, it, I think this would be I'm sorry, go on. Yeah. Uh, it just seems it it, <laughs> it almost just seems lexical when you when you're lo- talking about it in, in English. Yeah. I was gonna say it seems like it'd be difficult to teach a non-native speaker about this because it's a very like I get a feeling for what they mean. When, like when you say the book sells well, you don't mean the book is on the side selling wells, you know? Right. Like, um, and I think it's just <laughs> you just grow up getting a feel for that because um, it is marked by what looks like just a regular, you know, uh, I guess in trans or a transitive verb with no with an you know uh, no object listed. Right, right. I guess it's one of the the few ways where um, animacy is is obviously important in English because one one thing about it is book is inanimate; it can't actually sell sure. things. So it's, the point is that it's easy to sell. It's that's very true because if you use something, for example, assuming that, um, well, I was going to use an example of prostitution, but you couldn't even say like you know like she sells well because that you mean that she sells something. Yeah, the person whoever yeah. is being sold. Um, as horrible as that <laughs> example is, but right. if you say like these puppies sell well, that sounds a little weird too. No, but anyways, uh, yeah, but, but you understand there, perfectly what that means. That, but there's the hierarchy that we mentioned. They must be especially cute. Yeah, because because sell really goes mainly with humans in the in the mm-hmm. regular transitive meaning. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And somehow in their English verbs like taste and smell seem to me similar, like this tastes good, this tastes terrible, this smells horrible, versus I smell the flower. That seems almost like (laughs) the er the ergativity I mentioned earlier. It's like when there's an inanimate object or objects with low animacy, it becomes an ergative application where the subject is, the the grammatical subject is the patient. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But then we use weird um, predicate adjectives instead of adverbs and it gets all confusing mm-hmm. but we'll just that's you know, English weirdness we will move on although I'll say things like I'm not going to say that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back from madness I was about to say about Greek I'd have to research that <laughs> you know what um, I'm going to uh, say just really quick I think 
Uh, and we've had topics like this before. This is a very difficult topic to talk about, like, orally, because of the fact that we don't really, we can't really do, like, glosses and stuff. Right. I wonder, William, if when this episode posts, you might write a, like, a companion uh, blog post on the site. So um, that you can have I could I've also got a paper discussing exactly this thing. It it's a paper okay, so. from some clever German trying to come up with a semantic map for the entirety of everything that's not an active or a passive. Mm. Which is oh, right. Okay, up. that's cool. I the paper I link to makes a slightly different breakdown than the one I'm giving here, just because mm-hmm. um there seemed a little over complex. But they have lots of examples with interlinears and all of the stuff that you want, so Okay, um, so Maybe that just serves our purpose anyway. So right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we can we can give that. Um, okay. And then the the last thing that you can have is your middle might be a true passive. Um, like I said in ancient Greek, by using the correct oblique preposition, your medio passive becomes passive. I was seen by the general. Um. And then it becomes effectively passive. On the other hand, Somali has a middle voice but uses an indefinite subject pronoun for the equivalent of a passive. So you can't say I was seen. You have to say someone saw me. Hmm. Um, there are some there are some other sources that claim that Somali has a true passive. And even those people who say that, the number of verbs that actually take this morphology is quite low. Interesting. Right. So... Looking through your list, it was actually kind of surprising to me how many of these things actually do occur in Spanish, and I presume throughout Romance languages, but there's also, like, the de-objective doesn't happen so much. Right, and, that's, uh, right, right. So, so it's, it's interesting. You can have quite a few of these in, in one particular language, but, uh, you said there's no language that has all of them. Right. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, maybe you could yeah. with some, if you were feeling, if you were in an, an, an all of the middle voices kind of mood. Now, <laughs> with this, English doesn't really mark this, but in languages with richer more, verbal morphology or otherwise, do they mark this overtly when it's this uh, middle voice? What do you mean? Like, it might there be a sub, like a, like, if, I don't know if there are languages with, one suffix for active, one act, one suffix for passive, and then maybe a suffix for this middle voice. I don't know, and I'm not saying it's not possible, but I don't know of any language that has separate morphology for that is distinct for um, middle and passive. Like I said, mm-hmm. some people say Somali has this, mm-hmm. but it only applies to a small number of verbs where you have a sort of active, a middle, and a passive. It seems like uh, voice stuff is one thing that where it's likely for something to be repurposed. Right. So. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, um, I've seen one or two works that sort of um, traces the history of reflexives in the Romance language. And they start off Mm. fairly constrained, right, because Latin had a true passive and did things differently, had a few things that looked like romance reflexives, but not many. And then over time, and I've said this many times before, grammar is born hungry. Mm. The instant you are reflexive, I see myself, starts doing anything, anything remotely middle-like, over time it will continue to push its way into new meanings. Mm -hmm. 
It might start getting used for verbs of emotion. It might start getting used for things like natural reciprocals. And it just, you know, it, it can go on from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I can't think of any principled reason why you couldn't have an active, a middle, and a passive separate morphology in a language. I've just not run across a language that does it. Like, do you know if, does Japanese use any of that? I know Japanese seems to mark a lot in that sense, but. Uh, I don't think it really has, um, you know, I don't know enough. I don't remember enough of my Japanese. I don't think I ever was oh. taught the, the passive in the short time I took Japanese, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to look that up. I don't want to make us, uh, you know, right. deviate from this anymore, but. Right. I thought Greek had something marking like that, but I guess I didn't see that. Uh, Greek had something like what? Um, I thought that there was, let me see if I can find it right quick here. I think I had a link. Um, in the, in the Greek, not the leak, the Greek, um, there's an example they say, the Greek verb, like, I guess I'm gonna butcher this, loomai means I wash myself. Yes, loomai, right. Oh, loomai. And I thought that, my or just the I was what was showing that middle voicing. I'm Correct. not sure. Okay, yes. so it does have some sort of... Yes, yeah, so it has an entirely separate um, system of conjugation for the middle. Okay, that's what so I was getting in, in, in ancient Greek, unlike a Romance language, so liomai means I wash myself. Mm-hmm. It means what, what in English we would just say, I wash. If you just mm-hmm. say lio, that's mm-hmm. the normal active... In Greek, it's implied that you are washing something, <laughs> right? Greek is perfectly happy to leave subjects and objects implicit if they're already in the conversation. So it will, it's very sensitive to transitivity, but has no, no need to overtly mention a direct object on a verb that's already active and transitive. Yeah. That's something that I I feel like you could kind of free up with a middle voice um, in in circum- cer- certain circumstances, so that like because you're making this middle meaning very obvious with morphology or syntax or something, mm-hmm. then you can just leave objects implicit and not have confusion. Right. Yeah, right. I just linked um, so another site that mentioned really good examples of the, uh, I think, auto-benefactive. Right. Um, like, I carry versus I carry off for myself in a competitive context, I win. It mentions, right. uh, I think, I'm, I can't even try to pronounce it, but it mentions that oh my as that suffix. Right, right. I mean, that's just that's just the first person singular present so. um, conjugation. Um, I, I'm reminded of a funny transitivity error. Okay. Um so there's a online forum called TextKit devoted to people who are teaching themselves Greek and Latin. And very, very often, especially in the Latin forum, people come in wanting their spooky, you know, heavy metal band motto or, <laughs> you know, their occult orders motto or their fantasy role playing game motto turned into Latin because it sounds cooler. Like never tickle the sleeping dragon. From For example. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody wanted to give, you know, this, group of good guys, the motto that they destroy evil. And so what he did is he just he just went to a dictionary and grabbed the two Latin words, which were dilwo pravus, <laughs> which means I, a pervert, dissolve. <laughs> now, does that mean you dissolve like you are soluble in water or you dissolve something? Right. That's the clever thing. <laughs> 
That is exactly the right question to ask. And with Latin, I think it means that you are dissolving something. I like it better with the middle interpretation, however. <laughs> Pop two of me into a glass of Alka-Seltzer, and there you go. Right. Let me let me verify that it might have an intransitive meaning. Uh, no, it's definitely solidly transitive. Hmm. I just wanted a t-shirt that said, I, a, d- a pervert, dissolve. But <laughs> Wow. Anyway, that's the danger of just using a, a dictionary. Anyway, so moving on, once you've got a middle, all sorts of weirdness, and however you're indicating the middle, all sorts of fun can follow from that. For example, mm, yes. some verbs may only ever occur in the middle. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So this is very common in ancient Greek, Somali, full, full day. Um, there, I, there may well be verbs in Romance languages that are only ever, you know, are never used alone. They're only used um, with reflexives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are. There are, yeah, right. Um, so even though you have this middle morphology, mm-hmm. the, the totality of that construction might still behave transitively in argument structure. Okay. So, for example, getting back to washing, in German you say, Ich wasche mich die Hände. I wash me the hands. Mm. Yes. Which is exactly <laughs> the same thing that happens in Romance languages. Right, exactly. Exactly. Very common in the European languages, very common in ancient Greek. Yeah. Is that like, I love me some chicken? Sure. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> I wonder, well, anyway, we can do English linguistics after the show. Um, so, and, and then just for, for insanity's sake, Greek, ancient Greek, has a rather mysterious thing where certain Verbs that are active in the present and all of their tenses, except for some reason, always have to be middle in the future. Mm-hmm. So words like to see, perfectly boring blend word, I see, is always in the middle in the future. Meaning that you are no. seeing yourself in some way or you're seeing for your benefit? Nobody knows what exactly <laughs> is going on there. Papers are written. Dissertations are produced. Hmm. Actually, I want to mention one thing. Uh, and, and ask you a question about it, because I'm not sure if this actually qualifies as a middle thing or not, because, so in Spanish there are, you know, you do have the se construction, but there's also a rather bizarre, uh, thing going on with certain emotion verbs where- Oh yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. You, um, basically it's agreement with the patient kind of thing, uh, like, um, gustarse. So, uh, uh, me gusta, like when, when you say, yo me gusta el, el, el voz medio. You wouldn't I say, love, yo, I like the middle voice. You wouldn't say, yo, you'd say, a mi. That's right. A mi me gusta el, el voz medio. Technically, sort of the agent is, it's more like a passive. Cause, and it ha, mm-hmm. for gustar, you have to do this. For gustarse, you have to, sort of the agent, the person doing the liking, becomes the object, and then it has this agreement with the the uh, the the patient, the thing that's being liked. It's kind well, of... I think of it as, like, you know, something, something is pleasing to me. Yes. Like, if you're saying, I hope you, or I hope, I hope you like me, that might be diff. that might be, you know, espero que te gusto. So like, what we're talking about you. here is there's an entire class of verbs that have to do with experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, verb uh, 
we, we talk about the experiencer subject. Um, the Romance languages, especially in the northern sphere, are infamous for having indirect constructions where what in English we would think of as the subject is actually in the dative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's what things like me thinks used to be. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right? It's not I think, it's me thinks, right? Some oh. thought came into my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brain is starting to melt down thinking about how dative experiencers work with reflexive middles. Well, what I thought which is, you were Which gonna, is what you're talking about here, I think. What yeah. I thought um, George was going to go into is in Spanish there are some, um, some emotion verbs like enojarse, to become angry. And you say man uh, yeah, that's, that's, it's like, I guess in English it would be similar to saying I, ang- I, I experience anger at my, or within myself or something like that. It's, it doesn't translate directly as right, the right. same thing. Well, again, yeah, this is, this is just, those verbs of emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole class. It's, um, enojarse, gustarse, encantarse. There's probably entristecerse, I guess. But you entristecerse? Wouldn't I've never heard I'm that guessing. word before. Uh, Make sure I'm not well. making things up. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so the, I mean, anyway, no. we, we, we've talked uh, about this. Uh, I mean, you can come, but but once you yep, get it's to, there, it's a real once thing. you get to to dative experiencer, then that also can start to move out into things like emotions and cognition, which is where mm-hmm. we get things like uh-huh. me thinks. Hmm. Um, but yeah, my brain is starting to shake and <laughs> rattle, and I guess it's going to blow soon. <laughs> Um, since, since I didn't, that, since I didn't prepare beforehand to think about these, I'm not sure I want to say anything too. Im- it, 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 it suddenly makes me think of Acuna Crazy alignment because, uh, well, sure, Acuna Crazy alignment is based on that. You know, starting that, from that, what we're talking about now. Um, what is Acuna Crazy alignment? <laughs> Okuna is a language we featured some time ago by Matt Pearson, who is actually a um, PhD in linguistics. Mm-hmm. And he took the dative experiencer idea and ran to the moon with it, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and some other things. I mean, we 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 don't need to. I'll have to check that out for some light reading. So the point is, the middle is really fascinating, but it is going to intersect with your alignment in possibly complex ways, mm-hmm. which are worth. I mean, they're worth making a note on, even if you don't want to solve all problems immediately. You know, make a note, say, how do I do this, and, and move on. And then when you're ready for that brain-bending bit, <laughs> hit it. Yeah. Anything else? Like I said, I have this one paper that is not very nicely typeset, but has a bunch of interlinears and examples from different languages beyond yeah, just the can, European languages. We'll so. certainly link that in the show notes. Um, I think um, we've d- done enough brain-melting for now. Well, uh-huh. on to our... Um, well, uh, Mike, did you have a question? Mike? Well, not a question, but I was just gonna, I had a couple notes on here that, I mean, we touched on most, most of them, but just another quick example of the, the active passive and then the middle one, um, from the, I guess, lingform.com thread. Uh, he broke the vase is pure, is active. The vase was broken by him is passive voice. And then the vase broke is where that middle voice is an example of an English. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a good example to tease yeah, apart the three. A, that's a good way to think of. That's one of the things that you can do with middle voices is bring out those examples of inanimate objects experiencing things that they can't have caused. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Thus, that's a quite so, anti-causative, presumably. 
Mm-hmm. If we're all done with that, we have our featured conlang. Hey. <laughs> Actually, not a conlang, a natlang, rather. A natural hey. language. So, um, um, um. it's been a few episodes since we've done natural language, so we thought we'd, we'd do one. And the one we are doing today is Burushkaski. Mm-hmm. Burushkaski. Yes. It's a little difficult. And it's ironic that we're talking about it now because um, making the linguistics rounds has been a paper that was recently published that is making the ludicrous claim <laughs> that, that the language is Indo-European. So, so the problem they... the problem with the Burushaski language is that it's spoken by the Hunza, who claim to be okay, so that this is this is a, it's an, as far as we know, a possibly isolate language spoken in Pakistan. Um, and this yes. is relevant because they claimed to be the remnants of the army of Alexander the Great. Oh. But but this language so, is not Greek. No, it's really not Greek. There are attempts to claim that it is related to Phrygian, which has come mm. up from time to time, and this is what the most recent paper is claiming as well, as I recall. Phrygian. Phrygian, yes. Phrygian. <laughs> uh, if you've studied, you know, the ancient world, you hear about the Phrygians because they had funny hats and periodically were exterminated by Greeks and Romans. Oh, funny <laughs> hats. <laughs> yeah, I don't Phrygian. know why I'm laughing at that. Yeah, well, that's what the Greeks and Romans did. They <sighs> conquered people. Anyway, so the Hunza people um, in certain uh, three valleys in Pakistan, Ismaili Shiite Muslims speaking a really, really weird language. Um, the things about it that are most interesting and that make it most weird are, in particular, a heavy use of prefixes for morphology. Okay. Um, that's really the big one, um, and it has a, a four-way class system, which exists pervasively on the nouns and the verb system. Mm-hmm. Um, the prefixing thing is why some people try to relate the language to um, the Ket language in Siberia, and by way of Ket, all the way over to Navajo. Do you say cat or Ket? Ket, K-E-T. Okay. Huh. So a few years ago, someone came up with the evidence that the Ket language spoken in central Siberia is related to the Nadene and Athabascan languages of America. And at this point, I think most people accept that. Yeah, that's generally, they're generally accepted. If you can accept that Ket and Urushaski might be related, um, then we have language spoken in Pakistan related very, very distantly to Navajo, which would be kind of cool. Uh-huh. So, anyway, um, should we move on? George, you like to talk about phonologies? Hmm. Yeah, well, um, uh, I'll look back at the phonology. I was looking a little through the grammar. I'm like thinking, how could you think this is (laughs) Indo-European? So, I mean, normally it's vocabulary that you use to determine yes. relationships, and you assume that grammar can change, but the systematic way that Borushaski grammar work does not seem particularly Indo-European. I mean, the Indo-European okay. languages have gone through some pretty profound changes, right? But mm-hmm. even, even you're right, they develop ergativity, all sorts of fun stuff like that, but it, it seems a little strong. Um, George, you might like the Wikipedia page better in terms of laying out the phonology. 
Yeah, because I can't, I yeah. can't figure out anything from that um, list there. Like many languages of the region, it has inherited an entire series of retroflex consonants. Mm, yeah, I saw that. Distinct from alveolars and dentals. Although I noticed uh, they actually specifically mentioned that it's missing the uh, N. The it is missing the nasal, so that suggests it's maybe a little bit. Although but, it's um, it's pretty huge in every other way, so I'm surprised that the N. Is but missing. yeah, it had lots of retroflexes. Uh, Stops and a bunch of affricates. Yeah, mm-hmm. lots of affricates. Like Chinese, it has like the same the same affricates as Chinese does. Oddly enough. Oddly enough. Uh, a retroflex approximant. I've never seen that backward under upside down R with a tail. I've never seen that before. Wow. I think is that, that, is that, that yeah that is the symbol for retroflex approximant. Uh-huh. I see yeah, it in yeah. transcriptions of English on uh, conlanging boards. Oh. Nobody yeah. uses it who actually does English linguistics because they just it's use a plain a. R. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything really bonkers about the sound system of the language. There are various kinds of grammatical processes that no. manhandle the accent that pull it mostly to the front of the word. Yeah, mm. it's... There's nothing really surprising except lots of retroflexes, which you don't right. see a lot in all, a lot of languages. It's, but that may be influenced. They mentioned that it's it's similar to um, sort of Hindi Urdu in that in yeah. in some respects. And they, and, and you expect they've been sitting next to each other and, and sitting close to both um, yeah. languages of the subcontinent, both Dravidian and Indo-European, that have absorbed retroflexes, so that's not surprising. Yeah, it has lots of uh, friction. That's just the, the one thing that is really big. Um, yeah. um, what was I going to say? Um, like I said, it has um, a class system quite similar to, to gender. There are mm-hmm. four human males, human females, animals and countable objects, and then materials and abstractions. Yeah. Interesting. What's where, the, um, mm-hmm. where it's mostly semantic, but as always with these things, all sorts of things get moved out. Those letters to the Again. right. Again. Uh-huh. Uh, go ahead. The uh, N-M-S-T-W-W-C-K, are those like the endings, or are they just what they abbreviate them as? Oh, no. This is Burushaski, so they're prefixes. Oh, okay. Oh, those are the prefixes for them. Yes. Again... Where the hell do you get the idea that this is Indo-European when it has four <laughs> freaking genders? And Indo-European started out with animate, inanimate, and, and most of the languages ended up with... People masculine. who want the Burushaski to actually be the remnants of the army of Alexander the Great are highly motivated to relate this language to Indo-European. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh... It may, I mean, genetically, it makes no sense either, right? They're haplotype puts part of their genetics from the subcontinent and part of them from further into East Asia, which, you know, puts them, makes the relationship with Ket a little bit more likely. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me think of all the, the, the uh, crazy crackpot theories that uh, occur with Basque. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that would be another show. Every isolate language is a blank slate for crackpots. 
Uh, right, there's someone, works. I think, I think there's someone who's trying to say that Zuni, the mm-hmm. language spoken in the United States in the, the, the desert southwest is related to Japanese. Oh. Which is, again, more lunacy. Anyway. <laughs> um, so th- th- again, there are exceptions in the gender system, like a word like house, um, even though it's, Accountable object is in the most abstract class, um, whereas uh, things like so, if you're a supernatural being and you're female, you're in the human female class. But if you are a supernatural being and you're male, then you are in the animal class, not the human male class. Huh. Oh, interesting. So right. they actually kind of shove those to lower energy. Yes. Yet again, more evidence that um. That Conlanger's general um, uh, assumptions about where supernatural beings go are wrong in terms <laughs> of naturalism. Right. Oh my like, gosh. Oh my. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm looking. I was just uh, looking at the Wikipedia on this, and um, it meant, kept mentioning these positions, like but by number. And I just found the eleven positions of the finite verb. Right. The verb. And, <laughs> <laughs> right. So this is what makes people think that maybe it's related to Navajo, is there's an 11 slot system for the verb. Jeez, it's like, I, I'm, I'm baffled. I mean, it's, wow. Oh. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a nice, it's a nice complex system. Um, it's uh, organized ergatively so that your prefixed pronoun marking is either the subject of an intransitive verb or the object of a transitive verb, um, and the third persons are all marked for these four classes. Mm. Um, Again, this makes no sense for the 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 inter-European theory. I'm 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 slowly coming to the conclusion that those people are stra- strange and idiots. And the number system is uh, vigesimal, so that's not really, uh, yeah. It's based well, on base twenty. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's... I guess we should not talk so much about uh, crackpots, but uh... yeah, right, because <laughs> they'll send us angry, angry mail. Um, uh, let's see here. The language is neat if, in that it distinguishes alienable from inalienable possession, and takes that the further step um, mm-hmm. in that. Words that are that take inalienable possession must always be possessed. Oh, so you cannot ever say ma- mother; it always has to be someone's mother. <laughs> and what if you just what if you don't have someone to put it with? Like the mother is here. And you'd have <laughs> to say someone. How do you know <laughs> okay, that when, it's how do you know that it's a mother if you can't say it's someone? So it would have to be someone's mother. That's what Navajo does. It just uses uh, it has a a, um, a possessive. Affix that just means someone's. Huh. Yeah. Well, think about it. In the majority of cases, uh-huh. when you would actually be speaking, you would know whose mother it is. Because that's that's the main reason for using that term, is any kinship term or anything like that. Right. right. But in, in the off chance that you were talking about mothers in general, they, they might have some special way of dealing with it. Yeah. Huh. Interesting, interesting. So, in the, the PDF we have that we'll list here, um, they make an observation, once again, that Navajo does exactly the same thing. 
And then just has a funny sentence. A speaker of Burushaski asked, what is the word for hand? Well, answer Aren, my hand, or Guren, your hand, depending on where you point. <laughs> huh. Right? <laughs> Interesting. So, so the possession is marked by a prefix for inalienable, and alienable possession has separate words. Mm-hmm. The, the pluralization on the Wikipedia is interesting, too. Like, yeah, there's you know, many plural patterns. Are they just based on word-by-word basis? Like, sure some words like take it. this type, some words take that type. That's, yeah, it sure looks like it has to be memorized. Oh, if anyone wants to do a combine with that kind of thing, that'll be a fun sort of like an adventure, remembering all the different endings and being like, this will go with this, this will go with that. Right. I think, and it's it's my theory that conlangers tend to avoid things like, you know, class three nouns that have, you know, a dozen different possible plural markers because we all harbor the <laughs> idea that we might want to use our language. <laughs> For more than just be, confusing people. We're more than just confusing people, and we would like not to have to remember and screw up things ourselves. Anyway. Well, historical uh, development is good for uh, throwing that out. So That's true, too. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning else? that... Earlier you mentioned there uh, the cases. There's um, not uh, not not there's a absolutive ergative, and then there's oblique. Is it? What is that just used for all not um, that uh, for everything else? Hmm. Like I think English basically um, don't we like when we say like I and then me. Me is that an oblique case? That's not accusative. Right. The problem is oblique is going to mean something different from language to language. Uh-huh. It looks like. In Borushkevsky, oblique does two things. It's the genitive mm-hmm. and then provides the stem onto which a bunch of different other marks happen. Yeah, I was thinking of using oblique in one of my languages, conlangs, but I would want to get a more firm grasp of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, oblique is just, again, it's a, you throw up your hands and you say, there's no <laughs> other word that works better. Yeah. I used to have a Russian teacher, whenever we asked a question that she didn't have the answer for, she'd throw up her hands and say, oh, fate. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a stereotype of, of Russian. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of neat. It has these compounded um, case endings for location. So in, at, on, and near all have locative, um, ablative, and allative senses. So, mm-hmm. you know. So too near, from near, at near, something. Hmm. Um, that reminds me of languages of the Caucasus, which is yet another place people try to relate Borushovsky to. Hmm. Um, huh. Given the weirdness of the verb, it's actually the verb system. It's actually quite regular. You have some weirdnesses in the verb stems, but once you've memorized what goes in each slot, it's pretty darn predictable. And basically, if you don't have things that go into slots, like into the middle slots, you just skip them and go to what you, you do. You have, skip right? them. You skip them. So you do have mm-hmm. some phonotactics that can muddle things up a little bit, but for the mo- technically, you could say everything's regular, except I for think two or three. I want to go back really quickly and mention. <sighs> so, uh, Mike, you mentioned that the numerals are are um, vigesimal. Yeah, vigesimal. It's really interesting how that works because up to 20, there's actually are sort of teen constructions. Mm-hmm. Torum goes to Tor- Torma Hen, Torma Altan, which is, and 
which is deriving from 10 plus the the uh, other number. And then mm-hmm. you go to 20, and then once you go to 30, it goes really funny because mm. you know have you that that's where you see it become truly vigesimal because you have 30 is 20 10 and then mm-hmm. 40 is 220 220 10 mm-hmm. that's not yeah. as as wacky crazy as um what was it danish that we yes. Met, yes. That, that we talked about but it's pretty interesting the way it works um, one thing with the posi- to jump back to the position of the verb, doesn't not V have certain places in the verb where you stick things? Uh, yes, but that's infixing. Yeah, yeah, but this, I mean, well, okay. I mean, I guess I figured, I thought of them as, um, kind of like cubbies that you stick things in. No, 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 it's not, it's not. Um, so for languages like Burushaski or any of the Athabascan languages, people talk about a template mm-hmm. morphology. Okay. And that's what this is. Navi's morphology is much more like um, Indonesians or Malays. Now, what do you? What is template morphology? It's this, where you've got eleven or some dozen slots, where you just put different parts, and then you get a verb out the other end. Would this be like an agglutinative yeah. kind of thing? Kind of like a what? Agglutinative. It can be agglutinating. It can be synthetic. Mm-hmm. And all uh, I'm saying there is, if it's agglutinating, agglutinating, good way. If it's agglutinating. <laughs> then each morpheme is obviously identifiable in the chain. If it's mm-hmm. synthetic, that means hanky-panky happens when things collide. All sorts of morphological changes happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Borushaski and Navajo are definitely synthetic in the sense that a number of kinds of phonetic changes happen at the boundaries. Mm. Technically, they're predictable, but you have to memorize a vast number of rules, so it might be easier just to think of them as both synthetic. Mm. The... The main thing is, and I have I have a feeling that the template is sort of more of a theoretical construction that we use to explain to to talk about this metalinguistically. It's, it's it's sort of generally the idea is that you have certain categories of uh, affixes and they occur in a certain order. Yep, and mm-hmm. it's morphosyntax. Yeah. It helps us, uh, I think talking about a template just helps us to talk about these languages where basically you have bunches of different affixes on the verb or something like that. Right. I mean, the main distinction between Burushaski and the Athabascan languages is that in Burushaski, you have the verb stem happens in slot five. Mm-hmm. So there's more things after it than there are before it. I mean, there's still an interesting class of prefixes. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a language like Navajo, for all practical purposes, everything is prefix. And the, and the verb still comes at the very end? Yep. Hmm. <laughs> that sounds, that, that, that breaks my brain a little bit. <laughs> um, like, I think of it and I'm like, how do you know where the verb end starts and ends? Well. But, <laughs> craziness. Um, uh, one thing that's neat and that, again, sort of brings potentially Buroshaski into the fold of the the, the Dene-Yanesian family is that it has a prefix in slot two, which is a D, um, and it is used to tweak the transitivity of your verb, including producing things that we just talked about today, middle-like things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's used in verbs of motion sometimes. It's used in, uh, I saw a great one. Oh, my foot itches. My foot itched. Um, ahutis darami. My foot to me, my itched. <laughs> um, so, so with one stem, we've got cold to get cold for a masculine to get cold for feminine and then to cause something to be cool. And then you have another prefix, which is effectively a transitive, um, causativizer, which is in slot four. Bum, bum, bum. Can you use D and S together? I didn't think to check that out. That would be fun. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I'm wondering like, oh. are any of these, like you must use like maybe eight A or eight B or maybe nine D or nine E, or can you use like, is there a word that might have all 11 of these or all? There is, I would be, <laughs> flabbergasted to find out there was a, any word ever that used all of the slots. Yeah, so that'd be, um, I mean... I know for a fact that, that that is the case in Navajo. Of the vast verb chain, you don't expect usually more than eight. Oh, that's only eight? Only eight of the eleven. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, and, and eight is at at the, the high extreme. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's, that's, that's bizarre and bananas. It's crazy. One interesting thing to me about Burushaski is that it has no word for not. There's the negative prefix, but yeah, it's not a separate. Right, it, it is. Uh, it, it is morpheme. It's not a separate particle. It is only marked on the verb. Now, would you say that's not a free morpheme? It's a, it's only exists as a bound morpheme. Yes. Okay. Huh. I wonder. Is there a word for no? I wonder. There is a word for no. Mm. Mm. Like in Japanese, they also have like there's a whole conjugation for negative, right? There is a whole conjugation, but you still have a a, a word. Oh, there is. Yes. Yes. Yes, I think that's true too. I don't yeah. think they have a separate word for not. So, but that I mean, that's cool. I think George, weren't you saying you like when there's something special about negative like that, like when yeah. it's uh, well, conjugation? Oh yeah, I like um, I like when the verb has a negative form mm-hmm. or something like that, rather than having a particle. Just yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of a, a funny thing to uh, it's it's a fun thing to see when uh, and very different from what we're used to, mm-hmm. um, at least in, you know, European languages. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'm just kind of, uh, do you think maybe we can wrap this up? Because, I think we've, uh, we've plotted sure. this enough, I think. I mean, there's, there, there, there are some interesting things about how subordination happens. There's a special verb form called the consecutive, which is used in verb chaining, right? You, or clause chaining, I should say. You did this, then you did this, then you did this, and then the main verb comes at the end and gets the full. Um, yeah, I'm just saying. Apparatus. Definitely, we will link to this grammar, and mm. you guys should, everybody should look through that. I'll have it's to look, short. It's not the, super crazy complicated, so I think it's yeah. this should be within the realm of anyone who wants to to give yeah. a full read through in an hour or two. The Wikipedia is very I'm, helpful too. I'm I like it. Sounding. Yeah, I'm sounding dumber than usual on this one because, like, I, I'm just looking through the grammar right now and I didn't prepare at all and just kind of seeing random things. But uh, I think definitely look at the grammar a little bit yourselves and uh, there's a lot of good ideas that you can draw from this uh, language, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm? That's why I put it on the list. Hmm. Yes. And it was only by accident that it suddenly burst into the news again. Perf. <laughs> okay. 
So why don't we move on to feedback? Hmm. Let's shall. No objections? Nope. Okay, we got a couple of emails, so I'm going to do two of them because they're kind of short. Um, uh, we have one from Thomas Lindroth from Sweden. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his surname right. Uh, he says, hi, I just listened to your 52nd episode and heard you mention Kales. I think it's Lesh uh, <laughs> in Klingon. No, Kales. There we go. Uh, I just thought it would be fun to mention that when I first read about Klingon lacking the K sound, I wondered if Kales was a pun. Klingon <laughs> is actually Kales. There are many other puns in uh, Klingon, like uh, Chang'eng, Chang'eng, uh, Pear, from the... the the Siamese twins, but perhaps Kalos is too far-fetched. What does Kalos mean? Or what is Kalos? It's, it's Kalos, someone's name. Kalos, he's, uh, it's like some, yeah, yeah, it's the name of, uh, a hero in... A culture in hero Klingon of culture. the Klingons. Yeah, mm. um, but I don't think, he's sort of a messiah figure too, but, um, I don't think so. It'd be uh, funny if the language were named Kalos. It's it's a funny way, uh, a funny thing to uh, to think about. But it, in seriousness, I, I think that um, that was probably, unfortunately, one of the names that was just foisted upon Mark Okrand, and right. he decided to make a a nativized Klingon version of it. Yeah. Because, but you know, it would be really fun if it was that way, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um and. We have another one that we might want to respond to a little bit further. It mm. says, from John, he says, Hi, I discovered your podcast recently, and I've been listening to some of your archived episodes. In those early episodes, you referenced Nooblangs. Mm. And I was wondering, what are the hallmarks of a Nooblang, and how can I tell if I've made one? Hmm... Now, first off, I wonder, do we all have the same idea of what a nublang is? Probably have similar well, ideas of what a mm-hmm. nublang is. I mean, I can tell you what I think are the two main points of a nublang. Okay. Okay. The first point is, if it has a great many sounds and grammatical constructions and words that perfectly match that of your native language or yeah. a language you've studied. Relaxing. Yep. Relaxing. Well, relaxing and yes. re-phonologizing. Right. An English speaker who puts a th and the sounds in a conlang um, is probably inadvertently making it a new blang. I mean, they may, they might just love that sound, put it in, you know, that can happen. But yes. yeah. So that's the first point. I like I like to say that I put that in. I I put the in Iurio because of the sound and because of the sound of language. But it may have also been that at the time that I first created the language, I did not realize that those sounds were not very common. <laughs> Um, at some point in my life, I want mm-hmm. to invent a language that uses um, fricative harmony. Ooh. <laughs> so I need the for that just because because Probably. I do. So the second um, thing that characterizes a new blang is um, what we call the kitchen sink or all the morphemes. <laughs> so yeah, how many morphemes? Over 9,000. All, yes, all, all the morphemes. All the morphemes. That's when... 
you have an enormous complex table of everything that you found that you thought was cool and interesting. It all gets put into the same language without necessarily. Why are you giggling so much? Because I've done this. <laughs> we all have. I know, but it's funny because I, I, like... <laughs> I had an entire shoebox full of languages that happened when I got the Klingon dictionary. I just went completely bonkers with highly crazy agglutinating languages. It was like walking through a field of burrs, and every burr on your sock would be another thing of language. And it's like, ooh, I found this. Let me add it on. It was a horrible yes. Frankenstein monster of a lot of con language. Right. Well, so it can be very this, easy. I I think of you know this podcast. Every week we talk about almost every week we talk about a new linguistic feature, and you know a lot of people might be tempted to just like make the conlangery conlang. <laughs> Oh, put every single feature that we've mentioned in it, but that would be a little wacky and under and uh, difficult to right. Right. In there. Every single one of those features that you find fascinating and wonderful and can be perfectly well put into a conling might not really make a great deal of sense with the rest of the language you have existing. They might so not work together. Right, I mean, kitchen link, kitchen sink conlang is not so much the problem because there are some mind-bogglingly complicated languages in the world. Oh yeah, morphological yes. craziness of just you know old Irish that makes me cry, um, <laughs> or Navajo, which makes me go into the fetal position. Um, mm-hmm. But that all has to work together as a system. So I think the 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 problem with the kitchen sink is not that you're using all the morphemes. There might be a way to make that work. The point is you'll have things that are kind of these blobs that don't assimilate to the rest of the language. I think what it's that, um, what I was going to say is it's kind of like in in that terms, when you're cooking, you don't just take all the ingredients in your cabinet and put them all into one thing. I mean, sure, there are recipes that that use all of them, but more than not, more likely than not, if you just grab every container you find and dump some of it in, it'll come out looking like a big hodgepodge mush. Yeah. Yeah. And, I want to say there, this, both of these things dovetail into what I think of as Nublang. And it's basically when you are obviously doing, using things and putting in elements that you don't understand and doing things just because and not knowing the reason why you want, want it in your language. Any? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, well, well, just stay with me for a second. Okay. Conlanging is a work of art. And in any work of art, whether it's painting, whether it's writing, or anything like that, you just don't throw things in. You have to sort of think carefully about things and have reasons and justifications behind, you know, in a book, why you have a certain minor character in there that, you know, what purpose do they serve? What what are they telling about the story or about the char- other characters or what? That's, mm. um, or about the setting. In a, a conlang, what it, main thing is, uh, I would say, if you are historically minded at all, how did this feature develop? And most more importantly, because of, you know, what conlangs, if you are putting a feature in, how is it used? What does okay. it do? 
And then, of course, when you're talking about words, you have to think about carefully about just about every word to think about, do I want to have just one definition or should it have this chain of relationships like we talked about in the, in, uh, not the last episode, but, uh, the, the, the episode where we had David J. Peterson, you know, making your words sort of not quite the same as English or even completely covering totally different semantic space than whatever your yeah. native language is. For me, well, I have a couple things to say. For me, like, first thing I look for is kind of like, how similar is it to your native language? I mean, if you have a, I mean, if, if someone came up to me and showed me Esperanto and I didn't know Esperanto mm-hmm. and I saw the word for bird is birdo, I'd be like, what are you doing? This is <laughs> what, what, what? Um, I mean, that's not to say it's bad. It's just, I'd think of that as, you know, is it you, actually birdo? It is yeah, birdo. It is. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it makes me cry inside, but whatever. Um, as far as not, what I was kind of, meaning about when you were talking was um putting things in not knowing why they're there like i don't know if every like not everybody is very historically minded not everyone does a big like ger- derivation so maybe they couldn't say well why is there a fricative here or maybe why do they use the i don't know why is there an accusative case well i mean there are limits to the level of detail that you're going mm-hmm. to be doing in your reasoning but i think yeah. in general when you're talking about grammatical features when you're talking about Things like the middle voice. Mm-hmm. When you have middle voice in your in your conlang, don't just like say, "Okay, there's a middle voice." That's <laughs> that. You have to say, "Okay, how do you use it?" Okay, What's I understand that. Yeah, that's like yeah. If, you, if you're making a machine and you put a lever on the side, it better do something. It should do something. Yeah, and it should. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, even if you're not prepared to say conlanging is an art, or if you're making an engineered language, right? You want a perfectly unambiguous language that's simple to talk to robots. Mm-hmm. You still have design goals, and yeah. everything you add to the language should first meet those design goals, and second, hopefully, should not get into a big fight with other decisions you've made <laughs> earlier. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so one thing that I brought up from time to time is the possibility of discussing one of my earlier conlangs on the show so that I can complain about everything that I did wrong. Maybe we'll do a show on nooblangs. And, and, and one of the characteristic features, for, for me at least, of things I felt I did wrong is I added features which there was no need for. Or uh, when you have a completely free word order language, I'm not sure why I needed all of the voice trickery I had. Okay. In, uh, for for example, I don't need all those voices. It's it's ludicrous, um, and I didn't but, fully comprehend what you would use an inverse voice for. But I, I mean, think I had some, some idea, mm-hmm. but but not not a deep understanding that I have now. Um, what I was going to say is that sometimes I I forget who it was, but there some redundancy is good because that way if there's like a gap or if you don't hear something, you can retrieve that information from from the context or from somewhere else. Like uh, if like um. Oh, what's a good example? Probably grammatical gender. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's you know not everything is once it's there you don't you don't have to say it again. But um, but I can see like if you just sort of throw everything out all willy nilly, um, right. you can come across that. Right. I mean, again, there are different reasons for creating a conlang. If your purpose is to create a language which simply conceals your diary from your little sister, <laughs> then it is probably 
not, I mean, no one is supposed to understand the language, so it doesn't matter if you mostly, you know, relax your native language. It's effectively being a code, mm-hmm. right? So a new blang is a little bit vague. I mean, in the context of this show, we almost always mean people who are making naturalistic languages for artistic purposes. Obviously, other conlangers can listen to us and learn interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, the middle voice, for example, you know, implies things even for people who are engineering super logical languages. Um, but new blang, just like everything else we say, relates to the purpose for the conlang. Yeah, I, obviously that is a a point to uh, to reconcile. But I think I f- in general, mm-hmm. I think in general the thing that would tie all the new new blangs together is well, they're made by noobs who See, often uh-huh. have limited knowledge of it, linguistics, and they just make some mistakes in how they. In what features they include, in how they, uh, in uh, how they create their dictionary, and just it's just the 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 idea of a nublang is it just it has a bunch of uh, oddnesses that don't make sense with its design goals, and just reveal that the creator is linguistically naive in some sense. So that's. That's what I think of as a nublang, you know. That's mm. and that's not to say that we don't want new people creating conlangs. Yeah, uh, that's uh-huh. we're 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 we we just we do this show partly to help people make better conlangs. What I was gonna mention earlier, um, in terms of you know nublangs, is. I don't think it's necessarily like a like is this a new blend yes or no. I think there are aspects that may or may not be more common for a novice conlanger to to do. Um, and earlier I likened it to cooking. Like if someone cooks a recipe and they do something out of a box, that would be someone who's relatively not experienced in it, or someone who has had more experience or who has been more that may either formal training or just done it more. Maybe they see other. Um, like other correspondences yeah. that line up. Well, for um, a concrete cooking example, it's like mm-hmm. when I uh, one day decided to put paprika in my spaghetti sauce and realized that it was not the best choice. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that happens. Yeah, um, or when I put... I mean, uh-huh. So if... We don't know from John how long he's been conlanging. Everyone makes new blangs. Everyone, everyone, everyone makes new blangs. They might make several new blangs. In my That's case, okay. I'm older than probably almost everyone listening to the show. So all of my new blangs are gone. Long, long gone. Shoe boxes that got <laughs> lost and moved, that got thrown away. So only I have fairly recent things. And even one of those is not, not really great. Unlike, for example, David J. Peterson, who went through his all the morphemes phase and documented <laughs> on a very colorful web page. Uh, that's hilarious. I, yeah. So, see, so see. everyone starts out, everyone's going to make new blangs, and just like artists are constantly sketching, and people who are not a cook have to do it a lot and make mistakes that only they will eat from time to time, I think conlanging improves from practice. So make a bunch of new blangs and mm-hmm. just yeah, try to do better each time. And be proud. And, and yeah, just, don't, don't freak out about it. There's no human language is the most complicated thing humans do. Hold on. 
Hold on. Where is my phone? I hear it. Why is your phone playing reggae? <laughs> yeah, that's a better question. <laughs> okay, I mean, I what reggae, you... but that's really unexpected. Anyway, so starting over, click. <laughs> Which one? Right. Go on. Okay, language human language is the most complicated thing humans do. Mm-hmm. We do it every day, and we forget how difficult it is. There's a long apprenticeship in being a conlanger if your aim is a really sophisticated, naturalistic, expressive result out the other end. It's going to take a lot of practice and a lot of time to learn how to do. So okay. each sketch you do, focus on doing something better. Okay. It will still be that's, a new blank. That's, that's uh, a, a good Word point. I know that... Um, some of my early language, some of my stuff, like Yeltach, probably, if I look back at it, probably has a lot of things that I would do differently now. Um, I know that Irio, because I have revised it a couple of different times, you know, started out with stuff that was kind of not stuff I would do now. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and sometimes that language can be revised successfully without... Leaving a disaster too. Yeah, I've had but, my first lens. I did a lot of kitchen sinking where I find something new and I'm like, "Ooh, I'm gonna put this in." Yeah. Ooh, and yeah. yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. what were you saying? No, I think we've we've run through this. I mean, everyone's gonna make new blanks. If you're a beginner, you're gonna make a new blank. That's just the way it is. And think of all of those new blanks as part of an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like we've gone into our words of wisdom in this of it too. <laughs> and and post all your embarrassing new blangs up on the the forums and stuff, and don't get take it too personally when people criticize them because that yeah. will help you get better. Yeah. Uh huh. Um. So that's done with. Why don't we go <laughs> to William? What are your final words of wisdom for this episode? Um. You know, I was just thinking how much I hate the word wisdom. Sorry. <laughs> what Sorry. Do you prefer? I, I don't know. Inspiration, something like that. So I've got this language that I've been working on now for just over a year, Kafzai. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it is only now, in the last few weeks, that I'm really feeling that I'm producing vocabulary that's interesting and rich. Ooh. Huh. I want to make a point here. That took a year to get to. I think a lot of people try to produce languages too quickly, and they... They follow George's advice and post them too quickly. Mm-hmm. Don't rush. Unless someone's hired you to invent a language for you know, a multi-million dollar um, movie or TV production, take your time. It's okay. The results are better. Yes. <laughs> okay, and Mike? Uh, I'd say don't fear the noob lang. Um, you know, it happens, and sometimes, you know, great interesting things come out of there. I don't think it's like a scarlet letter to be worn by the conlanger. I think it's just eventually your language will become either, you know, they'll become more um, natural feeling if you're going for naturalness or if you're going with an engineering engine, engineered lang or an aux lang, they'll more, they'll achieve the goal you're looking for more uh, efficiently. So um, mm-hmm. experience and practice and um, try to save your old conlangs. You, you can always look back at them and be like, oh, look what I did. And hey, laugh. even. Yeah. Even Tolkien's earliest languages were kind of silly. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yes. just before we go, I will clarify one thing. I don't mean make your first language, make a full grammar of it, and then post it online. I think start making it and post sort of sketches and stuff on forums and stuff and ask specific questions. That's an important thing. Because you'll that way you will attract people who know about some specific thing, some specific feature, and they will be able to answer your questions better. Yeah, digesting but, a full grammar is difficult. <laughs> yeah. Beyond that, I'm just going to say happy conlang. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Whenever he saw a hot guy, he would say, boing. That's uh, really weird, because I had a great aunt that would say boing all the time. For what? Just Like at the dinner table? It was, it was just a funny thing that she said. Apparently, <laughs> uh, before my time, um, unfortunately, she had a monkey named Albert. From what I understand, Albert was not always good-tempered. He liked to bite people. Oh, jeez. And yep. um, and she needed like oven mitts and uh, and like protective clothing if she was going to change his diaper. I think it's awesome that he was named Albert. <laughs> <sighs> Did you just puke? No, I just got on the floor. So I was just looking at Navajo verbs today, so it's funny that I mentioned boing because the Navajo verb for to jump or hop is additionally used in verb phrases referring to being sexually interested in things. <laughs> I thought including, you were going to say... Including, including a special Navajo verb to mean be a frat boy, essentially. It means to go out and look for sex. I didn't know that, that was a main part of the Navajo lifestyle. It may or may not be a main part, but somebody said it. <laughs> if a Navajo um, has done it, they've got a verb for it. Sex <laughs> is always important in any culture, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. For our next con worlding episode, we need to include that statement. So, um, Mike, I have discovered sometimes that papers about linguistics. They give mm -hmm. examples from languages the um, person doesn't actually know. They just found it in an article somewhere else. So are we going to try to keep it below 82 minutes this time? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't care, honestly. I was just... I'm just, going to, I'm just going to let, do what I always do and let the discussion mm -hmm. run as long as I feel like it.
CDs are so the first decade of the 2000s anyway. So I've even thought about doing stuff like um, putting out lower quality versions for... Because we do have bandwidth-impaired people, we might want to put out, like, 16-kilobit stuff, but... Uh, bandwidth-impaired. That sounds very PC. <laughs> it does. It sounds like a euphemism for... Well, anyway. All right. So, in three, two, one. When people stop dropping things. In three. <laughs> William. Is guidance yes. a better word than wisdom? Words of guidance? Yeah, that sounds like a teacher. It's, I have a problem with the word wise in Sagey. that I think... Uh, it, it, to me, almost always when people use the word wise or wisdom, mm-hmm. it's just their way of approving of something very banal that they already believe. I haven't, I haven't explored the middle yet. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's hysterical. Okay. 